Welcome to the Renaissance Christian Church Podcast. We're a church family with the mission of seeking God, serving others, and sharing the gospel. We're grateful that you have joined us as we study through the Bible, and we hope that it brings you encouragement and inspiration for your daily life. Here's Pastor Jared Saavedra. Well, good morning, family. Happy to see you all. And uh, we'll be again today in our um, Thanksgiving series. We're actually going to be in an Old Testament book. We'll be in Nehemiah chapter 12. And the title of uh, my message today is Rediscovering Thanksgiving. Rediscovering Thanksgiving. Um, I was just noting, looking at, you know, our, our, preaching schedule, essentially, and what, what our series schedule is for the rest of the year. And man, do we love the holidays at Renaissance. We're preaching tons of messages on Thanksgiving. Um, we're breaking out Christmas um, shortly after, and we're just, we're just love to preach uh, the holidays, and um, we just really love to preach on, on Thanksgiving and Christmas. And I think that's good. Thanksgiving, to be certain, is, is my favorite holiday. I, I don't... Um, I don't hide that fact from people. I think it's superior to Christmas. Haters going to hate, I guess. But um, to be certain, I, I love Thanksgiving. I love the food. I'm a true traditionalist. I'm not that kind of iconoclastic kind of person that's like, oh, I have pizza on Thanksgiving or you know, fried chicken. No, I want the turkey. I want the gravy. I want everything the pilgrims had. I would have eel pie or something if, if we could find it in the supermarket, to be certain. But really, I, I, I keep thinking, I was thinking about this question of, of what is the, the, what is the act of Thanksgiving? Like, what is the, the thing in which, without which, like, it wouldn't be Thanksgiving? We might think, oh, you know what? This is something we always do on Thanksgiving, and without this, it's not like, it's, it's like we really haven't celebrated Thanksgiving. Maybe for you, it's, it's, hey, we have to have the turkey, or we have to have the ham. Maybe you're a ham family, I don't know. But maybe it's a, it's a particular show. It's, hey, we watched the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade, or we watch, um, there's usually marathons on Thanksgiving, like Twilight Zone was a big one. I know there's, there's other ones and stuff like that. Um, and then there's the dog show. I don't really understand the dog show. It comes on after the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade, and by that time people are eating. I don't know who's actually looking forward to the dog show, but it, maybe you are, I'm, so, I'm sorry. But to be certain, and, and you already know the answer, the, the core act of Thanksgiving, that this core celebration of Thanksgiving is truly, yes, the act of giving thanks. And what I want to press into today is, is really asking the question, what does that involve? Especially for God's people, what is the act of giving thanks? Is it merely just a solemn moment before we dig into our food and chow down? Is it just spouting some words of just, hey, hey I'm, I'm thankful for these things in my life or these, these material goods, even though maybe I don't have everything um, I, I'm thankful for, for what I do have. Well, that's, that's all good. But I think for, for God's people, and we're going to look at an Old Testament example of this, um, God's people, to give thanks for God's people is really the remembrance and the confession of God's faithfulness and present mercies. The remembrance and confession of God's faithfulness and present mercies. And in the Old Testament, there are many passages that show us examples of these characters giving thanks. We, we can think of, you know, um, 
David rejoicing and giving thanks when the Ark of the Covenant was coming back into the temple. We, we can think of even Daniel after he heard that there was a, a law formed against praying to God, um, went up to his house and opened his windows and gave thanks as he did three times a day. And shortly after that, he was, he was thrown into the lion's den for um, basically not obeying the, the state mandate. And we have all these situations in which characters in the Bible give thanks. But I thought this one in particular in the book of Nehemiah was unique because they gave thanks for something very particular, and it was the dedication of a wall they had built. And so from our passage in Nehemiah, we're actually going to read quite a bit of the text, um, so be, be prepared to um, see me endure through pronouncing a lot of Bible names. But um, to be certain, we're going to glean some things for ourselves. But essentially, my point here today is this, that God's people here rediscovered the act of thanksgiving as worship, and they renewed themselves in the realization that God was really among them. And it's from these core truths that thanksgiving came out and flowed out of their lives and of their hearts. And so we look at this particular occasion. It's in Nehemiah chapter 12, starting in verse 27. It says this, verse 27, At the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgivings and with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres, and the sons of the singers gathered from the district surrounding Jerusalem and from the villages to the Nephophethites, also from Beth Gilgal and from the regions of Geba and Asphameth. For the singers had built for themselves villages around Jerusalem, and the priests and the Levites purified themselves, and they purified the people and the gates and the wall." And so the story of Nehemiah, if you're vaguely familiar with what happens in this particular book in the Bible, is a story of someone wanting really to build a wall. This guy named Nehemiah, he wanted to build a wall, but it's, it's a lot more than, than that. You know, the, the, sum of the, um, the sum of the parts is, uh, what is the term? Um, you know what I mean? It, the, it's greater than just the wall itself, the bricks and the mortar of the wall. Because if you remember, um, and if you're familiar with Nehemiah, you, you um, might have heard this before, but you can read in Nehemiah chapter 1 how he was a cupbearer to the king in a, in a distant country. And it was at the time in which God's people were exiled um, from their homeland because of disobedience, and it was God's judgment upon them. And Nehemiah got word that the wall of Jerusalem had been broken down and it was dashed to pieces. And so essentially the wall had no defenses. And for Nehemiah, he was absolutely broken of that. And he took to weeping, but he also took to prayer and confession. And this is important in that in his prayer, he was driven to action because he remembered the distinct promises of God to his people. And this is what we read in particular in Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 8 through 9, and he, which, in which he implores God to remember his his promises to his people. And he says, remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, and he's quoting the word of, uh, he's quoting the law of God from, um, I believe it is Deuteronomy. If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, 
From there, God promises, I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make by name dwell there. And Nehemiah speaks and he interjects in this prayer and he says, they are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. And so Nehemiah in his prayer, as he's driven to action and his heart is broken because the walls of Jerusalem, God's special place of dwelling are broken down. He's basically saying, God, remember your promises. Is there a way we can return and be redeemed as your people? Is there a way in which we can enter into a positive confirmation of the covenant that we have with you? And so Nehemiah is driven to this work and he asks the king in in this distant country to give him favor and give him supplies to go rebuild the walls. And he uh, incredibly is allowed to and he's given everything he needs, essentially a, a blank check. And so he goes to the work of building the walls of Jerusalem. And even throughout the whole entire book, Nehemiah is seeking various confirmations that God is with them. He sees confirmation that God is with them in the success that he's had in, in, in building, getting building supplies. And he finds confirmation in, in various other things. And even the last line of the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah is pleading to God to remember him for his, his good. And so In addition to building the walls of Jerusalem, Nehemiah understood that it wasn't just building the buildings. It wasn't just people coming back to Jerusalem, God's people coming back to their their homeland. It was that these people should be coming back and returning to faithfulness and pure devotion to God. And he called them back to worshiping God. And so a few chapters back, we have the reading of the law of God's law, where they just spent literally just all day reading God's law. And it was Nehemiah's continued conviction to draw God's people back to God and their pure devotion to God that motivated him and even spurred him on in, in, uh, over against opposition and adversity in his time. And so in the end, God raised Nehemiah to be the governor of the city of Jerusalem. And it was under his leadership that the wall was completed. And so when we approach this passage right here, the wall is being dedicated. And though outwardly, you know, it was the people who had put in the hard work, overcame adversity, um, separated, divvied up all the responsibilities to build the wall, At the dedication of the wall, they don't celebrate themselves. They don't see this as a human accomplishment. Rather, they they dedicate the wall to the Lord with a celebration and a praise service of thanksgiving. So the word dedication, for our understanding, it really just means to assign great significance to commit something to something of great purpose. And so they understood that this wall that they've built around Jerusalem, it wasn't, it was more than just its practical purpose, you know, to keep bad people out or or whatever. It was more than just the bricks and the mortar and the wood that they would have put into it. But for them, for God's people, it was tangible evidence that God had remembered his people, that he was truly among his people. And this is what they celebrate. And so they celebrate their thanksgiving to God in very specific ways that we'll look at right here. And number one, as I've already read, um, their first way they celebrate is that they they assembled together. God's people gathered into the city, and it started with, in particular, the Levites. The Levites who are set apart in order to be the worship leaders of God's people. They assembled together to worship as a body. And they brought in the Levites, um, notably, to, to dedicate 
this wall with, with gladness, with thanksgivings, and with singing. And so we see the, the attitude in which they celebrated, that the gladness there, we see the reason for their celebration, that the thanksgiving and the confession of God's faithfulness and his goodness on this occasion, and the, even the prescribed method for their celebration. And as they, they said, that it's, it's with singing, but it's also with instruments, with cymbals, with harps, and with lyres. Not like telling a lie, but like, you know, like the little harps, those kind of things. So as we see... The Levites were, were essentially the worship leaders of the people. They were more than that, but they definitely were worship leaders. And they, they were tasked with a serious call by God because he had set apart the Levites for a very specific purpose. And that's why they're taking this role here. It's a serious role to call God's people to worship. And that's why we also just appreciate our worship team as well, because what a serious role that is to inspire God's people to worship, to lead them in the worship service. And so that's what the Levites did. But um, we also see that something else is happening. The Levites are gathering together. They had gathered from various places from around Jerusalem, even small villages outside Jerusalem in which they had built their houses. And they gathered together in this place, signaling the time in which God's, all God's people should gather together. It's kind of signaling the start of this worship service. And so we should remember in this case the, how in, integral worship is when it's uh, an assembly that's worshiping together. Really, the way in which worship works for the predominance of God's people throughout history is really the assembly of God's people. Psalm 70, um, I'm sorry, Psalm 35, verse 18 says this, I will thank you in the great congregation, in the mighty throng, I will praise you. So much of the life of the church and the life of each individual Christian should be devoted to corporate worship and corporate services. And of course, our, the way in which we assemble, especially at, at Renaissance, and I'm, I'm sure many other churches have looked different over the last couple of years as we, we've navigated like, okay, that we're going to gather in this way and, and do like this as we're navigating crises. But one thing to remember and what we should really glean for our purposes is that in every ordinary case, at every possible moment, worship happens together. Worship happens corporately, and it happens in the midst of God's people gathering together. And as this text tells us, it's also fun. It's also fun. Worship happens with gladness, with joy. It doesn't have to be a drag. It's a fun thing to worship God, it's a celebration. That's really what a church service is. As we gather together and we sing, it's exciting. It's a celebration. We have the gospel. We have the good news that we are forgiven, that we are redeemed, that we are called out to be God's people. And it's a good thing and it's a fun thing and it's a joy to come together. But of course, the people's celebration right here, the dedication of the wall, had another dimension to it. And this is the second way in which they, they approach God with thanksgiving. It's that they purified themselves as well. They purified themselves. Reading verse 30 again, we read this, And the priests and the Levites purified themselves, and they purified the people and the gates and the wall. I mean, why stop at the people? They just purified everything. And so another role, in addition to being worship leaders, the Levites had this role of setting the people apart, of purifying them in order to approach God. And this was a ceremonial purification. You can read about it in places like Numbers 9, and it typically involved 
the sprinkling of, of water and the cleansing of oneself with water, but also often involved animal sacrifice to atone for sins. And it was a recognition of God's holiness that, hey, under normal circumstances, God is way above us morally. God is holy and we are not. God is perfect. We are sinners. And and there's a certain disconnect in which we recognize, hey, we're not worthy on our own nature to approach God. We have to purify ourselves in a method that God prescribes. And so we understand in this great joyous occasion, in the concurrent with the the shouts of joy that happen, the singing, the playing of instruments, we see that there's a, a solemn celebration, a solemn recognition, and an underlying sense of God's perfection and our unworthiness to approach him. And yet, this is part, it's not a diversion, it's not um, a digression from their celebration, but the solemn occasion is even part of their celebration. Proverbs gives us um, one key to the happiness that we experience as Christians, and it tells us that happy is the person who is always reverent. And so these people, their, their reverence was just a part of their worship. It wasn't taking away from their joy. We rejoice, of course, in God's forgiveness of sins. We rejoice in his mercy on us, his great long-suffering and his kindness and his goodness. But even out of those things in which we rejoice, they come out of the fact that God is, is perfect. God is holy. All the things we rejoice in for, for the goodness of God and the forgiveness of God come out of the fact that, hey, well, God should be judging us for our sin, but he doesn't. And for that we recognize that he is perfect and holy, completely different than we are, and therefore worthy of praise. Psalm 99 kind of presents the the idea that God's very exaltation above us, above his people, makes him worthy of praise. Him being completely and wholly other than we are makes him worthy of praise and separates him and exalts him from us uh, um, Psalm 99, verse 2 and 3 says, The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted among the peoples. Let let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. And so in that psalm, they they praise God for his holiness. And really, that's the the end goal of, of purification. Not to be holier than thou. Not to feel morally superior or even ceremonially superior in this occasion to other people, but it comes out of our pursuit of God, that in prescribing ceremonial purification, God is not saying, keep away, you, you dirty people. God is giving us the means and a way in which we can approach him. In other words, it's not a keep out sign, but it's an invitation to fellowship with him. God's way of holiness, God's prescription of holiness, his command for us to be holy people, to pursue God, to see God. That's our end goal. But what's the next way that God's people express their thanksgiving? As you can see, this this thanksgiving, it's bursting out of them. It starts in their great affections, their recognition that God is with them, and it comes out in various ways. So this is more than a quick hey, thanks God for this, and then it moves on. No, this is a whole celebration, and it involves, thirdly, walking. They walked around. Look at uh, Nehemiah verse, um, uh, chapter 12, verse 31. 
Nehemiah is speaking, and he says, Then I brought the leaders of Judah up onto the wall and appointed two great choirs and gave thanks, or that gave thanks. One went to the south on the wall to the dung gate, and after them went Hoshea and half of the leaders of Judah. And Azariah, Ezra, Meshulam, Judah, Benjamin, Shemaiah, and Jeremiah, and certain of the priest's sons with trumpets, Zechariah, the son of Jonathan, son of Shemaiah, son of Mataniah, son of Micaiah, son of Zechur, son of Asaph, and their relatives. Um, And he lists a few more people there. I won't um, uh, (laughs) struggle through their names. And 37 says, At the fountain gate they went up straight before them by the stairs of the city of David at the ascent of the wall above the house of David to the water gate on the east. And then in verse 38, he says, The other choir of those who gave thanks went to the north, and I followed them with half of the people on the wall above the tower of the ovens to the broad wall, and above the gate of Ephraim, and by the gate of Yeshana, and by the fish gate and the tower of Hanael, and the tower of the hundred to the sheep gate, and they came to a halt at the gate of the guard. So both choirs of those who gave thanks stood in the house of God, and I and half the officials with me, and the priests Eliakim, Messiana, um, um, a, a series of names right there that I won't <laughs> continue to pronounce. It's funny, I was reading this and I was like, can I do it? Um, and sure enough, so in verse 43 says, um, and the singers sang, verse 42, and verse 43 says, and they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. So in addition to the series of names that Nehemiah wants to recognize as having participated and led this particular procession, um, we see a, an event, a, a part of their celebration that involved walking And so God's people go on a walk here. But it's a lot different than the walk you might take after, you know, stuffing yourself with with turkey and yams after Thanksgiving. It's it's a very specific walk because they are walking, as you might have caught there, it's a choreographed walk, and they're walking along the top of the walls. And these people had separated into two choirs who are shouting and giving thanks to God, walking seemingly in opposite directions, and eventually meeting at the house of God and singing his praise there. So we must understand, like, what's so significant about this? They're, they're taking a walk, and they're doing this together. And is it just more than just a, a cultural ceremony? Well, yes, and, and on a few points, we should understand that this walk had a direct contrast to earlier in the book with when ne- in the book of Nehemiah when Nehemiah walked around the city kind of inspecting how bad the city was when the walls were broken down and it was an absolute shambles Nehemiah records in in chapter 2 that there was a place in the wall where he was trying to get around but the animal that he was riding couldn't even get over the rubble that was present there but by this time In verse 31, we see that the wall was completed and could withstand choirs, choirs of people walking along the wall on top of it. But aside from the the literal existence of the wall that facilitated their their march, essentially, um, we should understand the significance of, of people marching together. And I think... We, on, a, on a deep human level, like we recognize the significance of, of people marching together. Just think about you know, fundraisers or um, political uh, 
protests or just celebrations. We love parades. You know, we love marches. People march together and, and make a political statement. And usually there's some significance to where they start and where they end up. And people marching in the streets has, you know, affected a lot of great change in our culture, whether for good or bad. But it's essentially people banding together under one banner, under one purpose, and marching. I mean, just think about the significance and the, the perpetual nature and the value of a thing like the Rose Parade. I think even right now I heard that they're already setting up the bleachers for the Rose Parade, and it's not till New Year's Day in Pasadena. But, you know, people love parades. And I, frankly, I don't, I don't see the appeal of, of watching things go by necessarily. But, you know, people, it's, it's a big, I think there's something innately in human nature that kind of thinks this is an amazing thing of, of people joining together and celebrating and walking some distance, banding together. There's something that hits us in a certain way when we see masses of people walking for one particular purpose. But what they're doing in Nehemiah chapter 12 and walking along the top of the walls is not just making a value statement or a political statement, but it's a walk that would have filled their hearts and their lives with deliberation and significance as the city itself was a tangible reminder of, of God's faithfulness on it, was a reminder that God was truly among his people. And let me give you um, the reason why in, in verse, I'm sorry, Psalm 48, verse 11 through 14, it gives us kind of a picture of the importance of looking at the city of God, of Jerusalem, and remembering for God's people that the significance of his faithfulness. So in verse 11 of Psalm 48, it says, let God's, let, I'm sorry, let Mount Zion be glad. Mount Zion is kind of a, a, a key term for, for the whole of Jerusalem. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. Walk around Zion, go around her, number her towers, consider well her ramparts, go through her citadels, that you may tell the next generation that this is God, our God, forever and ever. He will guide us forever. Notice the psalmist right there is, is saying this is God, but he's not literally talking about the towers and the ramparts that this is, this is embodied God, that we should worship the towers themselves. Rather, what he's saying is that these towers, these things in God's city are positive signs of his covenant with his people. And for the Jewish people in the Old Testament, that, that really was the case. That God said, hey, I'm going to dwell in a very specific city among a very specific people. Here's the way in which you can tell that I'm in good relationship and fellowship with you. And here are tangible evidences of my grace and my mercies toward you. And it's, are the walls up? Are these defenses up? As long as Zion stood, as long as the walls of Jerusalem stood, the God, people of God were given proofs of God's kindness and mercies. And it wasn't that these towers themselves and the walls necessarily kept their enemies out, but it was a sign that God, by his mercies, were withholding and holding up the walls and towers. That's the idea here. As they walk through, walk on top of the walls, as they survey what God has done, even though they were the ones who just put that wall together, it was a reminder of God's faithfulness to them. And it was a deliberate 
consideration on their part. And I think we would do well to deliberate on God's goodness in that way, to be horribly inefficient with our time on Thanksgiving and to just spend some time, an hour, just thinking about God's faithfulness to us. We'll find out that we'll be rejoicing before long. What's the other thing that God's people did? And this is our, our kind of final um, point right here. They obeyed God's commands. This is a, of course, this is a celebration of dedication. We don't exactly know how long it lasted. May have been a day, may have been a certain amount of time. We don't know the exact order of events. We don't know their particular itinerary. But eventually, these people recognized and committed themselves to obeying the commands of God. We read this kind of in a recap in this passage in Nehemiah chapter 12, verse 44. On that day, men were appointed over the storerooms, the contributions, the first fruits, and the tithes to gather into them the portions required by law for the priests and for the Levites according to the fields of the towns for Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered. And they performed the service of their God and the service of purification, as did the singers and the gatekeepers, according to the command of David and his son Solomon. For long ago, in the days of David and Asaph, there were directors of the singers, and there were songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. So it wasn't just that there was an off-celebration and they just kind of left the party, and it was all back to, back to normal life. There's a, um, a random field. Every time we, we get on the 91, my, my wife and I, we see this random field off, like, Madison on the 91, and, and it has, like, there's, like, a tent up, and there's just chairs strewn over there. And it's been that way for a couple weeks. It looks like there was, like, a wedding reception, and then people just left it, and there's just trash everywhere. And stuff like that. It, it wasn't, this wasn't that kind of celebration where it's like, hey, one-off, big party, and then we're just going to leave it and forget about everything. This celebration, this dedication was a catalyst for the commitment of God's people to obeying God's commands. And in particular, the commands that he had given them in the Mosaic Law to tend to the house of God, to provide for the needs of the house of God, the, the contributions to the house of God, the giving of their first fruits, even tithing, giving of their finances. And so Nehemiah and the leaders understood that the rebuilding and the dedication of this wall was all for nothing if God's people weren't willing to commit themselves to the obedience and de rededicate themselves to the obedience of God's word. This was significant because they understood, as indicated right here, that they were in a situation that was larger than themselves. It wasn't an occasion that was just, oh, this is, this is a great thing, look at what we've done, but it was actually look at where we are in God's redemptive history. As Nehemiah prayed in, in Nehemiah chapter 1, he, he prayed with the recognition that God's people, wherever they are in history, are redeemed, are God's redeemed people. And so they understood themselves as part of this grand historical story. And for this reason, they go back and they see themselves as part of a larger tradition of thanksgiving and worship. 
And that's what they restart again. They look at the, the commandments in verse 45, the commandments of David and his son Solomon. And in the days of David and Asaph, there were directors of the singers, and there were songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. They, they returned back to the old ways, the old prescriptions of worship, the old commandments of David, which not only command us to worship, but also the method of worship. And I'm not talking about just the liturgical direction, whether we should use the lyre or the, the tambourine or whatever it is, but within the act of worship, remembering the terms of worship and the things in which we glorify, the, the things for which we glorify God. And that's why perpetually in the Psalms, um, and there are many Psalms I've quoted today in, the, in our message, remind us of the faithfulness of God. They, they start with usually some event that God had done, something of the past in which God has been faithful because it's in that remem remembrance of God's faithfulness, God's covenant faithfulness to his people that reminds us that, hey, we are not in a vacuum in our faith. We are part of a long tradition of God's faithfulness to his people. And so what's our takeaway today? I have three last things to say and then... Um, We'll, we'll wrap up, but essentially we should understand that Thanksgiving should be every Christian's preoccupation. It should be every Christian's default, recognizing God's presence, his faithfulness, and his mercies in our lives as God's people recognized in Nehemiah chapter 12. But maybe, just to reference what I said earlier, maybe you're struggling and you're seeking confirmation of God's blessing in your life as Nehemiah was, and he was seeking, hey, is God really going to bless? Is God really going to show up in this way, seeking tangible evidences? And for you and for all of us, I don't want to just list a few things for which we can be thankful. There are certain um, there are certain truths in which we can be thankful, but I don't want to just do that because remember, God's people not only gave thanks, not only remembered a certain thing about God and gave thanks for it and said, "Thank you, God, praise you, God," but they performed the thanksgiving that they owed to God. And so their, their faith and their thanksgiving was essentially ex experiential. That in understanding why they were gathered, the fact that they were gathered, understanding God's holiness, understanding God's faithfulness to bring back their walls in their city, they were moved to rejoicing with all their being. And they didn't just verbalize their thanks, they acted out their thanks. Psalm 9, verse 1 and 2, um, in Psalm 9, verse 1 and 2, David says this, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. David is essentially saying there's every part of my life, in every part of my life, I want to give you thanks, God. God's deeds Remembering God's faithfulness moved his whole being. It drove him to affection. And it should do the same for us when we consider God's faithfulness. John Owen says, and I love this quote, he says, Mercies, God's mercies, have their proper end when thankfully remembered. They've worked their greatest purpose in our life, not just to forgive us of sins, not just to bring us grace and mercy in time of need, but to bring us into a response to bring us into thanksgiving. And so there are three things we'll close with for us to do in response when we look at God's mercies. Number one, we should meditate 
on God's redemption. Doesn't seem like much, right? It just meditate is to, to think about. But true enough, the practices that, that God's people took in this place weren't just spontaneous or ad hoc celebrations, but they were responsive to all these positive confirmations of God's redemption, understanding that we've come this far, the wall is built, this is confirmation that God really is with us, that God is faithful to us. And we're not just called, as these people were, to the remembrance of God's prescription of worship through King David's psalms and things like that, but we're actually called to remember our Redeemer in a greater way, we're supposed to remember that the king of kings who gave himself for us. And that's why our acts of worship are truly starting with remembrance. Think about the act of communion that we, we participate in together. Think about the way in which we remember tangibly the, the sacrifice of Christ's blood, the spilling of his blood, the breaking of his body when we're partaking in communion. In that same way, when we remember the sacrifice of Christ, we remember our own redemption. It drives us to him in thanksgiving. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 through 8 says this, in him we have redemption through his blood. Not just tangible evidences of God's mercies in a specific physical location in a city as God's people were depending on in that case. But in our era of redemptive history, our surety of God's mercies on us, that the confirmation we have that he has forgiven us, that he has shown us grace, is all within the events of Christ's death, his resurrection, and his second coming. That gives us context in which to give thanks. And so in him we have redemption through his blood, Ephesians 1 says, also the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us. And it's this sort of meditation that drives the, should drive the thankfulness of every Christian today. If you're struggling in your faith, if you're struggling in these things, go back to the cross. Go back to the fact of redemption. And it is a fact. The second thing that we should, the second way in which we should give thanks with our lives is that we should seek personal holiness. Seek personal holiness. Maybe this isn't a point you expected from a Thanksgiving message, but really remember what God's people did when they were approaching him in Thanksgiving and dedication. They recognized that they were a sinful people and they were not prepared to go on their own merits before a holy God. But this should exhibit and emphasize and underscore and showcase for us the significance of what Christ does for us when we come to him. That by his cross, by his wounds, our sins are forgiven, our spiritual wounds are healed. But it's not just a one-time event for the Christian. It's a continual development and a continual refining of his people into holiness. And as we seek holiness, we should remember the way in which we seek holiness, the direction in which we seek holiness. And as we struggle against sin and temptation and seeking to do what God wants us to do, we should never divorce that from the fact that Christ has forgiven us and put us in a position of justification that we might seek him every single day, knowing that he is helping us and presenting us eventually perfect unto God the Father. 
Revelation 19, verses 7 and 8 tells us this, Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and the bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. So we have this kind of picture here of, of the marriage supper of the Lamb as described in Revelation. And it talks about um, uh, essentially a groom, groom and a bride. And the bride is presenting herself as pure to the groom. And it's a picture of how we approach God at the end of all things. And Christ promises to present us pure and holy. So your seeking righteousness and your seeking personal holiness is not only thanksgiving to God, is not only a way in which you can be grateful to what God has done for you, but it's also living out whom Jesus is making you to be. Number three in our last point is to renew your commitment to the house of God. That's another way in which we can give thanks to God. Just as the people here renewed their commitment to the obedience of God, recognizing the historical moment in which they were living, we should be enriched by the grace of God to give back and be to, ge be, to be generous to the household of God, not only in our tithes and our offerings, but also in our generosity of spirit, in our opportunities to serve and involve ourselves in the life of the church, to serve each other. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 10 through 11, Paul writes this. He says, He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness and he concludes, you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. God's people in this instance recognize, man, God is good. He has confirmed that he is among us. He has confirmed his faithfulness by what he has done, what he is accomplishing through us, and therefore they committed themselves to the service in the house of God. And so one of the ways we give thanks, yes, uh, and worship God is through our service and building up of God's people. Let's consider that as we pray. Father, we thank you again for your word. We thank you for these examples, these Old Testament examples of your faithfulness and of your mercies. And Lord, as we are in the covenant of the New Testament, and as we consider your great mercies on us, the fullness of your grace being bestowed upon us through the sacrifice of your Son, Lord, we rejoice even more. Understanding that, Lord, what you've done for us through the forgiveness of sins, through our adoption as your people, Lord, we could have never accomplished on our own. It is the fullness of blessing, and for all these things, we give you thanks. Lord, I pray for each and every one of us that we would not only give thanks with our words, that our thanks would not only be verbal, but Lord, it would be thanks through action, that we would double down on our commitment to you in living out our faith. And it's in Christ's name that we pray all these things. Amen. Thanks for joining us in today's study. If you'd like to know more about us or where you can attend one of our services, you can find information online at www.ren.church. 
That's R-E-N dot church. Thanks for listening.